welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the challenges we face, the impacts they are having on society, and what we can do to help solve them. My name is Julie Weldon, and in this episode, we're going to be looking at climate change in action and speaking with experts here in our Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy. According to the United Nations, climate change is having an impact on every country, on every continent. It is disrupting national economies and affecting lives. Sea levels are rising, weather patterns are changing and becoming more extreme. Many countries have declared ambitious climate commitments, but a recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warned that we must make policies and pledges more ambitious and enact them. Otherwise, we will fail to keep global temperatures below that needed to avoid the worst fallout from climate change. Given the scale of the challenge and the predictions of what will happen if we don't take action, why aren't we doing more to tackle climate change? Well, it might well be because of the way we're talking about it. Here to explain more is Dr. Chris DeMeyer, a research fellow in neuroscience at the Department of Neuroimaging and a visiting lecturer at the Department of Geography here at King's. So the vast majority of stories about the environment and climate change for as long as people have been measuring this, for as long as people have been analysing this, have been negative in nature. They've been painting climate change as this big disaster that's hanging over our heads and that's a risk to the planet, to uh, nature, to people, to our way of life. There is an unwritten assumption in many people's minds that the way to get people to act or, or pay attention is by raising awareness about the seriousness of the situation. So there's this conventional wisdom that sits in the heads of most people working on climate change and environmental issues that we need to raise awareness, that we need to get people concerned, and that will then lead to action, that will lead to society responding. Raising the level of awareness and concern does increase people's support for policy. So for, for people's support for abstract policy, so the idea that we need to act on X uh, increases as our levels of concern about X increase. But when it comes to detailed, specific policies, to very, very practical things on the ground, that's not necessarily the case. So that relationship between awareness and concern and an actual thing that happens in your neighborhood, that connection isn't necessarily there. And one good example is the low traffic zones in London, which uh, were brought in during COVID as a means to uh, redirect traffic over busier roads and keep it off the quieter roads. And it has split society enormously, not in people who are for and against action on climate change, but within the group of people who feel that we need to do something about climate change, it has polarized society because it's something very specific that touches you on many other aspects than just your concern about climate change. So that's the first dimension is like, Yes, concern is linked to increase for policy on an abstract level, but not at a concrete, very specific policy level. 
And the second thing is that concern or trying to raise concern in people doesn't always have the same outcome. And the reason for that is that emotions are not predictable levers for action. They're actually very unpredictable. If you manage to, or if you think that using a scary message to get people to act, then that will only work under certain circumstances. It works best if the scary message is accompanied by an action or a solution that feels concrete, doable, and meaningful, meaning that it allows people to say, well, if I do this, then the threat is gone. But on climate change, we, not, we haven't had those kind of actions uh, communicate together with the massive threats of climate change. And then the outcomes are much more, um, in, in that case, the outcomes are much more diverse. So some people will buy into the scariness of the message and say, oh, this is really important. I'm getting really worried about this. We should take really drastic action, radical action to, to stop this threat from happening. And they then become perhaps climate activists or become very active in that space. But just as often, or maybe even more frequently, it could lead to people switching off and turning away from the issue and saying, well, I realize this is scary, but it's just way too scary for me to be thinking about. And therefore, I'm just going to not pay attention to it anymore. And in the worst case, it can actually fuel angry rejection and denial. So the fact that there is a a strong minority, it's a small minority, but a, but a strongly active minority that is sort of known as climate skeptics or climate deniers, partially is in reaction to this very scary nature of climate change messages that has been with us since the early 2000s. He has also been looking into eco-anxiety which he says is a potential response to the alarming messaging around climate change. One of the responses is to believe the scariness of the messages and to become really anxious and worrying and, and continuously it being there for you to, as something to think about. That could lead to becoming paralysed by the anxiety for small groups of people, but it could also lead you to become sort of like an angry activist almost, as well as a, as a way to respond to that. In a project at the Science Gallery in London, carried out just prior to the pandemic, he asked people how worried they felt about climate change and what actions they were taking. If people find that sense of, like, yes, I can make a difference on climate change, I have a role to play here, then the anxiety will be channeled. It might not disappear, but it will be channeled into positive action. And so the reason for asking the questions was, first of all, to get people to think about that, but also to get some data around how anxious people are feeling and how able they feel to act on it. So I was, we were sort of expecting that there would be groups of people who would feel very high in anxiety, but low in their ability to act, low in their sense of agency. And we were also expecting that people would have a rather limited set of actions that they would put down in response to the question, how able do you feel to act on, on climate change? And that bore out really strongly because, and even more strongly than I had expected. Roughly, we did some analysis of the, of the uh, survey forms that we got in. And of the ones that we looked at, I would say roughly 70% of the actions were almost not even related to climate change. They were like, oh, I walk around with a reusable 
a water bottle. I, I, I use, I have my keep cup. Things that were to do around plastics and waste rather than things that have a big impact on, on people's carbon footprint. And then of the remaining 30%, I would say that 28% were climate actions like eating less meat, flying less, uh, using more active transport. But they were all consumer actions. They were all things that people had done, changes that they made to their lifestyles, to the lifestyle choices, to the consumer choices that they made. And it was almost nothing beyond that. So that shows that climate action at the moment in people's minds is synonymous to personal actions. And it was only a tiny minority of people who were saying things like, oh, I'm, an, I'm a climate activist or I vote um, uh, for the Green Party. And even a smaller, smaller, a handful of responses that came up with something much more original than, than any of those things. And we were hoping to get at least a few more of these responses of people that had been sort of pioneers in discovering other things that they could do, like where they would say, like, I changed my job because of climate change. Or within my job, I managed to get my boss to pay attention to X, Y, and Z. And there was just very, very little or almost nothing of that kind. And so, so yes, Action is the right antidote for anxiety, but at the moment, climate action is way too narrowly identified by people as these consumer actions that they're constantly being told they will have to change for society to respond to climate change. Another King's academic who has looked at people's understanding and action over climate change is Dr. James Porter, based in our geography department. Along with colleagues at the University of Reading, he looked at heat waves in the UK. UK's climate projections suggest that by about 2070, the UK's summer will increase in temperature by about five degrees, which is a considerable amount. But on top of that, we are expecting heat waves to increase both in frequency, they're going to happen more often, they're going to be more severe, so they're going to be much more hard hitting, and they're going to be longer. So it's not a couple of days, they might be weeks. There are important consequences of this. In 2020, heat waves were responsible for 2,556 excess deaths in England, many of which were preventable and occurred in those with existing health conditions, the elderly and the vulnerable. Heat waves can also cause disruption to critical infrastructure, including transport and energy systems. They reduce productivity and can even trigger subsidence if accompanied by drought. There are some opportunities, which is also important to point out. So you potentially could increase the productivity of our crops. So we might be able to grow uh, more crops than we can normally do in one yield. We may be able to grow different crops. There's also the issue that you may become less reliant on imports. So you may become more self-sufficient. But these are small opportunities compared to the, the, the greater risks. Despite the significant risk of heat waves, Dr. Porter points out, they don't get anything like the attention or resources that accompany something such as flooding, which claimed 11 lives in England that same year. By 2024, the government's budget for flooding will be about 5.2 billion. What we put into heatwaves is not even a shade of that. We don't even get into half a million at this point. Heatwaves remain sort of an invisible risk for policymakers. And by this, we mean they're aware of the risk. They're just not doing anything about it. 
And this is concerning because if you don't have a coherent policy on heat waves, you're never going to tackle it and it will never get the funding and it will never get the resources that it needs to actually be solved. The team found most research and government policy on heat waves does not cover the UK comprehensively. Policies are often limited in scope and regulations around workplaces or buildings often fail to consider maximum temperatures. If we don't have a maximum in terms of temperature, this is not factored into the design of our homes. And if they're not taking into consideration heat, you've built in a problem for multiple generations. Dr Porter thinks that British inaction over heat waves is partly because of how it's reported on and perceived by people. The classic image on a newspaper will be record temperatures hit this and then it will be a, a wonderful image of a beach full of people. If we contrast that with a flood, what you'll see is flood water destroying a home or running through a main city. And the juxtaposition there is staggering. One is telling you it's an opportunity, it's good, you should get out and enjoy it. The other one is it's a threat, you should be really worried about this. Dr Porter also thinks that people might push aside climate change as an issue because they see it as long-term, uncertain, something that involves high costs but unclear rewards and don't always know what to do. With climate change, what you find is that people understand that it's a problem but they find it very hard to determine how they should prioritise it, especially in relation to other risks that they face in everyday life. So people do have a good understanding. It's just kind of a question of, well, what do I do about this? Who should be responsible for this? How can somebody help me with this? He thinks we need to change the way we produce information so that it's both usable and actionable, but stresses this will only be effective if there is also political will to take action. The UK government on adaptation has deprioritised it politically over the last decade. So we've had the Committee on Climate Change, which has continuously pointed out to Parliament that the UK government is not funding this and not prioritising this. We don't have any coherent policies on it. And we've then got issues about we have removed responsibilities from local government. So councils have had national indicators which help them actually plan for climate change. We've removed those. We've removed the regional bodies that help and support and give them actually uh, funding and give them resources and give them best practice and share practice, remove those as well. Over 4,000 miles away in India, it seems gaps also exist there between local communities and those creating national or state policies. Dr Anju Ogra, a visiting research associate at the Department of Geography at King's, studied a community of coffee growers who are living with the reality of climate change through variations in rainfall patterns and increased temperatures which are affecting their crops and livelihoods. Yet she found people did not relate the term climate change with their own lives, as this was seen as an irrelevant or meteorological term, whereas weather was the thing they experienced. I asked uh, the community, coffee growers community, about what they think and how, what experiences are they facing or are they having about the changing climate. And uh, interestingly, because they're an educated community, they were not sharing with me their experience, rather they were sharing with me their response to the broader narrative of climate change, scientific narrative of climate change, which is about increased greenhouse gases, carbon credits, and more technical terms like that. And to move away for, from those things, I had to deliberately uh, stop using the term climate and just ask them about their experience. The only change I made was 
not to use the term climate change, instead to use the term weather experiences in lived everyday life. As well as the different terminology, she found a knowledge gap between the experiences of local communities and policies on climate change at a national or state level. Documents are in place, but there appears to be a gap between the intent of these national level policy documents and the action on the ground. Dr. Ogra says people's lived experiences need to be given greater emphasis and included in the policymaking process. Unless we make space for these lived experiences to emerge in the decision-making process, the communities will feel distant and the problem will, they will not necessarily relate to the issue and it will appear as a distant Western issue or other people's problem which doesn't affect them in their lives, which is not true. It affects them. They're facing the change but they don't as yet have the space to voice it. So now we've heard some of the reasons why people aren't taking action over climate change. What can we do to overcome these challenges? Dr. DeMeyer wants to see a shift in the way we talk about climate change, so we use positive stories of action instead. From my perspective as a neuroscientist, the solution is to tell stories of people acting to embed us in a sea of stories of people finding their way to act on climate change. So for the longest time, climate change has been communicated as an issue, as a thing, as a thing to worry about. But when you're trying to communicate in that way, you're speaking to sort of the very small cognitive parts of our brains. It's maybe 5% of what goes on in our brains, whereas a lot of what goes on in how we're dealing with reality sits in the intuitive parts of our responses that is shaped by our experiences, by our direct experiences, by the things that have happened to us throughout our lives. The stories that are about people doing things are much more suited to that intuitive analyzing parts of our brains because our brains have been optimized through tens of thousands of years of evolution to think about and to understand people doing things. Rather than saying climate change is a really big problem because ice caps are melting and temperatures are rising and oceans are acidifying, that's the issue-based communication, right? And that usually is then followed with, and therefore we must act turn that story on its head and you say, I am doing X, Y, and Z. Why am I doing that? Well, because climate change is such a serious issue, then you're tapping much more into that people processing parts of our brain. Most of the ways that we discover how to deal with problems is by looking at what people around us are doing. Telling stories of people who have discovered new ways of bringing climate action into their professional roles or who found ways to deal with it at at the personal level, the more inspiration you give to other people to find their own forms of climate action. He also thinks that in time, this could reach climate deniers. Immediately, you might not persuade all sceptics, but in the longer term, you will take the wind out of their sails and they will sort of like stop being such adamant sceptics as a result of there not being any, they won't be triggered anymore in the way that they are currently being triggered by the messaging around climate change. Dr Porter wants local government and communities in the UK 
to be supported to take action on climate change and for the national government to be held more to account. We need local councils, we need local communities to step up and actually do things, but they need support to do that. And this is where the problem emerges, because local government looks to national government and doesn't see it do anything, so it's like, why should we do anything? It's, you've then got local government which has gone through significant cuts over the last decade. They are really, really struggling. And then they've got really difficult decisions. Do we fund social care or do we fund climate change? And then they've got voters to consider every five years. So it's not surprising then when the immediate risk is the one that gets prioritised. In terms of like what we could do about that, I think you could ring fence uh, funding. You could reintroduce the regional bodies to support local government to make decisions. We could provide more usable and actionable information, which is designed for decision makers. So you're going to make a decision in this context. This is what you can do. But I also think that the Climate Change Act 2008 in this country needs to be revised. And that could be quite controversial. And I think a part of that is the Climate Change Act, as it stands, does not consider local government. They're absent from the whole document, which is very strange when we're expecting local action to drive climate change. What we need instead is some way of incentivizing and structuring local government action in this act. We also need to rethink things like uh, the climate change risk assessment. This is a, a statutory requirement every five years. The UK government assesses all the risks across the UK and says, this is our top one, this is our bottom one, etc. And then you build action on the basis of that. Unfortunately, this assumes that uh, science flows to policy. That if I just tell you what the problem is, you're going to follow it. And what we've seen persistently with the UK government is they will ignore the risks. Either they'll ignore them or they will only uh, deal with them in a very vague and unclear way, which means that you can't measure whether they've successfully met them. You have no timelines over how they're going to met them and you don't know which ones they're prioritizing. All of that's wrong. So we need to kind of revise that and think about, can we introduce a, a process where we say, these are policy options and the UK government has to pick which option it's going to do and justify why it's picking that one over the other so it can be held to account. And as part of that, we should be giving the Climate Change Committee greater responsibilities and greater power that if the government does not comply with what it's written, that there is some penalty attached to it. So the rhetoric actually has to mean something. You can't just say things. You've got to be able to go, OK, so this happens if you didn't do it. And if we're talking about heat, very simply, about 15 years ago, we introduced uh, energy efficiency certificates for homes when you're selling them. We also introduced flood risk maps. So is your house going to be at risk of flooding? Why can't we do this with, risk, with heat as well? So your house has this potential rating in terms of overheating. And that would then trickle for when people are buying homes to push to developers to make sure that their home is well ventilated and can deal with these problems. He has some suggestions for us as individuals too. You can write to your MP, you can write to DEFRA's climate minister and ask him, what are you doing? How is this being solved? You can also make sure that your voices are heard through. We have the climate summit that's supposed to be happening um, with uh, citizens being involved. We've also got COP26 coming up. You can make your voice heard there. 
but importantly, you want to put pressure on local councillors to declare a climate emergency in their council. The more that you have that, the harder it's going to be for the national government to ignore those voices. You've also got things like you can create an e-petition to create a debate in Parliament. You can get those set up. You can join climate outreach groups. All of this is to make sure that communities and individuals are empowered to take action. Based on her work, Dr Ogra is calling for better understanding of how issues and policies are seen by affected communities and how disasters and climate change are conceptualised. She highlighted how if the government thinks of disasters in terms of rescue and relief, communities follow suit and their expectation will be around compensation and rehabilitation. What individuals can do is initiate actions by, by demanding things from the government in terms of not just, for example, compensation after a disaster has happened, but the need to bring about change during, let's say, normal periods, uh, action for mitigation, how we can avoid to walk into a disaster kind of a situation. They can hold their decision makers more accountable. And that questioning would come from better understanding of changes happening outside. The UN Secretary General has proposed six climate positive actions for governments to take once they go about building back their economies and societies following the COVID-19 crisis. Has the pandemic, including the way it's changed every aspect of people's lives and highlighted the huge importance of global cooperation, given any cause for hope? Here is what Dr. Ogra thinks. Although what it immediately did was it connected the world together. I think it was the first time that everyone across the world was facing the same issue at the same time. So in that case, everyone felt connected. And uh, that is one way of looking at the challenge if we are thinking of uh, solutions towards climate change to make it more evident that this is something in which everyone is involved. It is a real problem which uh, is affecting everybody across the world. Pandemic does give a slither of hope there because it seems that the world did come together for a moment. Here is Dr. James Porter. You could say when faced with a life-limiting threat that can take over the world, yes, collectively we can respond and we can do that fairly effectively, especially if you look at new social norms. So uh, wearing face masks, being socially distanced, working from home, travel bans, all that kind of stuff. That was introduced fairly quickly and it was done without much resistance and we got immediate results. So that would be the yes, there is hope. But at the same time, this assumes that everyone agrees about what the problem is how it should be dealt with, and that we can cooperate successfully. And those are kind of questions that I'm unsure about. So if you look at uh, access to vaccines, Europe, we had a huge hoo-ha about who had them, which ones had them, how they've been distributed, all of that. You look at some, uh, you look at Australia, has one of the lowest rollouts of vaccination programs in the OCD countries. And then we have inconsistencies in the implementation and enforcement of wearing face marks, social distancing, just in our communities. So there are problems there. I suspect these same issues will reappear with climate change, regrettably. And that doesn't mean there's no hope. Rather, you need to think more creatively about how to, how to create action. Dr. DeMayer believes the pandemic has shown we underestimate the scale of both problems and solutions, which has interesting parallels with climate change. It's also revealed how change can happen at a furious pace. 
However, the protectionism seen around PPE equipment and vaccines at times of crisis also teaches us what not to do. It is showing us that we've got to avoid a sense of threat and a sense of crisis in order to maintain an international response on climate change. The less there is a crisis, a feeling of crisis, the more this international system can foster collaboration at an international level to tackle climate change. The more there will be a sense of crisis, the less that international response will hold strong. As our experts have outlined, addressing climate change is a complex issue. It will require different ways of thinking, communicating and working together at every level of society. However, all have identified things that we can do now to make a difference. And all are feeling optimistic we will see greater action over climate change. Here's Dr. Ogra. I do have a hopeful perspective of the future, and I think that would come from people demanding change for better and mobilizing communities and the crucial role of non-governmental organizations. Dr. Porter has noticed a change in attitudes, in part due to the pandemic as people have reconnected with their environments, and younger generations have also given him hope. And I think the next generation, generations to come, are really going to be pushing the environment as a key non-negotiable issue. And we see this through the school strikes, the climate emergency, Extinction Rebellion. All of these people are saying this is, this is not something that we can compromise on. So I think that there is hope there. Dr De Meyer says there are still challenges to overcome, particularly if countries experience disasters that affect their ability to govern. But he feels positive about increased action on climate change. At the start of this year, I had the feeling, and I still have that feeling now, that 2019 was the year of eco-anxiety, 2020 was the year of the pandemic, and 2021 was going to be the year of climate action. And it's coming through at the moment. We are seeing climate change breaking through in sectors where for decades it was not getting through. And we are starting to see a wave of action building across international organizations, across states, across uh, sectors in society like finance sector or lawyers or businesses and, and, and companies in a way that has never been uh, seen before. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series.